Hello and welcome to the Paratex podcast. I'm Dr Dennis Duncan of the Bodleian Centre for the Study of the Book in Oxford and in this series I'm looking at paratext, that is the parts of a book that are not the main text, things like indexes or footnotes or title pages. Today I'm talking to Dr Sarah Copland of McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta. Sarah's current research looks at the preface in modernist literature. Sarah, you you are writing at the moment about modernist prefaces. Um, I suppose the one that we're most familiar with, if we're familiar with any of these, is Henry James's prefaces to the New York edition of his work towards the end of his life. I wonder if you could just introduce that and talk about the kind of work that you're doing um, on this type of preface. Absolutely. So um, the James prefaces, as you say, were published uh, for the 1907-1909 Scrivener's collected edition of his works. Uh, Towards the end of his career, he published 18 prefaces uh, to 18 of his uh, most central works. And that's one type of preface that I work on. Other types include prefaces published with first editions. Others include prefaces published to other people's work. Often in this case, it was a a well-known Western writer introducing the work of a, a lesser-known um, Anglophone writer, say, from South Asia or Asia. Right. That, that's quite a big difference then, isn't it, when you're writing a preface to somebody else's work or when you're introducing your own work. I wonder if you could just say something about the, the different approaches. Absolutely. I think there are different sort of impetuses for um, each author's decision to write a preface or not mm. to write a preface. In the case of the Henry James edition, uh, one of the things uh, that uh, occurred was that Scribner's wanted the prefaces as a kind of value-added component to these deluxe right, okay, okay. Um, collected edition volumes. Yes, okay, so um, there are another, commercial yeah, sure. pressures then, pressure that's yes. not just coming from an authorial intention, but, but really coming from outside from the from the publishers then to produce these prefaces. Yes, and I, I think there was an, also an authorial intention in that case. Yeah, um, okay. James is known to have been quite anxious about the way that his work was being read, and, and many James scholars talk about his magisterial tone and style in the prefaces, that he was um, trying to reclaim ownership control over the way that the works were being read. Um, I'm not sure I see him as quite so magisterial and elitist in these prefaces, but I do think that that impetus, the, the, the authorial portion of that impetus in addition to the um, commercial one, is really all about trying to help readers read him. Right. Something else that I've heard or, or maybe we've discussed before is is with the James preface, the idea that you need to know the novel already. They're kind of retrospectively working. I wonder if that's something that you agree with. Right. Um, and that's really one of the central um, things that I'm working with, that claim that if we do identify um, narrative techniques that are common to James's novels in the prefaces, we have to have read the novels already in order to see that this, the way this functions in the prefaces. I'm not sure that's true at all. Um, I think that, yes, um, you know, these narrative techniques that were present in the novels were certainly present in the prefaces as well, but I think the way that they operate in the prefaces um, creates a sort of pedagogical scenario whereby the readers learn how to read in this way um, yeah, through... Yeah say, a a center of consciousness um, or um, a figure of um, unreliability in the preface itself and can use that as they move forward into the novel. So I think that these these prefaces can be read by first-time readers and um, second-time readers. Would you give us an example of the way that one of these prefaces reflects on the novel or or, or reflects pedagogically on trying to tell us how to read the novel? Sure. Um, I think that probably the best example and the most commonly known one is the um, preface to The Portrait of a Lady, where Henry James develops that famous house of fiction analogy. And I think it's the combination of the way he tells that preface through a gap between the older narrating eye and the younger man experiencing eye who wrote the novel in the first place as he looks back retrospectively and tells the story of that text's composition and revision and so on. 
he uses those techniques that are very, he essentially vocalizes through his younger self, right? He treats his younger self as a center of consciousness. Um, and I think beyond doing that, he uses that invented scenario, which to my mind is a form of fictionality, um, and says, let's imagine that I built up a house of fiction around my central character. And he develops this analogy, not just in that local paragraph in the middle of the preface, but throughout actually. And as we move through the stages of engagement with that analogy, I think we begin to use those interpretive strategies that he calls a doubled act of attention, um, which is really the way that we have to read figuratively narrated texts. We have to have one eye um, through the sort of through the eyes of the character um, yeah. through whom the text is being focalized, and another eye on the implied author or James himself um, to create some kind of check or balance on the perspective we're offered. Sure. Also, I find with those James prefaces that they reflect more broadly. They're, they're prefaces to more than just the particular novel they're prefacing, aren't they? They're, they're, they're kind of a course on novelistic technique or the art of the novel. There's something slightly more generalist going on. Yes, absolutely. I think you're right, and I think that we see that as especially in those collective edition prefaces where an author is reflecting back on an entire career and his contributions to the development of the novel as a form. Um, we see that a lot in James to a lesser extent, but I think it's also there in Joseph Conrad's collected edition prefaces. They were from the same era, sort of about 10 years later. Is, is that the same type of text then, that a publisher's idea of, of producing a kind of retrospective collected edition and wanting some value added and asking Conrad, can you produce prefaces for them? Yes, and my understanding is he was less willing to do so. He did end up okay. producing 21 prefaces, um, wow. but they don't have the same sort of scope and scale um, as the James okay. prefaces, but yeah. Well, what are they like then in style? Because the James ones, are, as, as well as being incredibly kind of complex, are also very, very generous, really, in terms of actually trying to help you read. What does a, a slightly more miserly or, or more reticent preface uh, <laughs> come across like. Sure. I think his are very playful and, and because I'm so interested in the way that these ostensibly non-fictional and referential prefaces use that strategy of fictionality, that the one way in which Conrad's prefaces do this and it's very playful is he constantly imagines interactions between himself and Marlowe, his, his central character oh, wow. and often okay. narrator of his novels. So he sort of breaks, he creates this huge boundary transgression where the author and the characters interact. You know, he imagines meeting Marlowe and talking to him. He also sets up scenarios where the, the reader could meet Marlowe. Um, again, these imagined scenarios. Um, so they're very playful. I, I think that they are similarly pedagogical, but they don't uh, okay. go about that pedagogy in the same way. How do they function as a, as a collection then? That's extraordinary, writing 21 prefaces for your complete editions, you say that, that they have certain connections, like having Marlowe as a character in them. Um, do they operate as a kind of continuous whole then? Um, I wouldn't say so exactly, um, especially because in one case, the, the very famous preface to The Nigger of Narcissus was written a, a long time before, um, 1917-1920. This was written um, for the first edition of that novel, and that's also included. Okay. And that one reads like an aesthetic treatise, right? Um, mm, mm. And so it is very different. It obviously doesn't talk about Marlowe at all. Um, so I think the, the style and tone of, of the later prefaces is fairly uniform, um, but the earlier one, the aesthetic treatise, is very different. Well, that's interesting. I like the phrase aesthetic treatise. It makes me, makes me think of the, the, the preface to the novel edition of A Picture of Dorian Gray. Maybe there's something that happens over time, something that happens in the two or three decades that you're talking about between the 1890s and the more high modernist period, um, to the idea of the preface. Is, is that right or is there de a development that we see over time? You know, it's interesting. I I think that the retrospective look at one's whole career um, and that, that sense of trying to explain one's works 
and um, how one's works contribute to the development of novelistic um, fiction. I think mm. that impulse really comes out a lot in these later career practices. Mm. But I should say that even the aesthetic treatise I do see as functioning somewhat pedagogically. And the way in which that works is again through these sort of fictive scenarios. He, uh, Conrad imagines that um, the reader is um, like a laborer on a plane and the, 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 the writer, the author, is um, working together with or observing the reader doing this work um, on, on a plane. And one thing that emerges from this scenario is that Conrad shifts the, his use of pronouns throughout. And of course, this is exactly what he does in the Nigger of the Narcissus novel. Right? Um, so I, I think that there is a certain pedagogical impulse there as well um, to get the reader accustomed to shifting through multiples, multiple pronoun shifts and perspectival shifts, because that's what's going to happen. Well, that's interesting, because the, the preface as well also has to address multiple readerships, doesn't it? There are different types of people who, who come to a novel for the first time or, or rereading. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the ways in which prefaces can address multiple readerships. Sure, yeah. So there are the first-time readers and the rereaders, as you say, um, and that's very, very common. There are also um, different audiences entirely, so especially if a writer, a Western writer, is introducing the work of a, a potentially lesser-known writer from yes, the East, yes, okay, yeah. they may be addressing, say, the British readership, where the, yeah. the novel is being published, but then also Anglophone readers from the East. So we, if we see, for example, E.M. Um, e. Forrester's preface to Mulcrush Anand's novel, Untouchable, he is addressing British readership, but there is material there and gestures there towards um, English reading public in India or Indians in living in Britain, um, just as there is too for Herbert Reed's preface to the Chinese modernist Chinese silent traveler narrative, um, where he is primarily again addressing a British British readership where the right. text was published, but. Um, is also gesturing towards um, English reading Chinese readers. Right, right. That, that's quite a shift, isn't it? That's, that's a very different function for a preface, where, you're, where it's a preface to somebody else's work, and, and the preface is maybe almost kind of functioning as a, as a kind of entree, a, a green card for this, this book. This is, this is why you should be reading this book that you've never heard of or something. Is that right? Yes, definitely. And in the case of um, Forster and Anand, I believe it was 19 times that Anand's masterpiece was rejected by British publishers, and only right, the commission okay. that Ian Forrester could provide a preface was it in the end published. Okay, okay, so you need the name name writer introducing the other writer by means of the, the preface. Right, and, and I think one of the things that's so interesting about the way that Forrester takes up that task is he shows how uncomfortable he is with the, a preface even being necessary, and with arrogating to himself that that kind of authority. Um, and yet, of course, it must be done. So the preface is indeed a kind of pamphlet or advertisement for the for the text. Right. Anti-pedagogical then, instead of telling you uh, why you should appreciate this or what's so good about it, is uh, uh, it's trying to reject that? Or? Well, what he does is he sort of describes his own reading experience um, because he, I think he doesn't want to arrogate to himself that position mm. of okay. telling other people how to read because that would seem appropriative um, or colonizing. Mm. And the, um, the non-authorial or the allographic paratext has indeed been seen as fundamentally um, colonizing or appropriative. So I think he wants to resist that um, implication. And so instead he talks a lot about his own reading experience. And um, there are invitations to see the text in this way, but it's by no means um, suggested that he has mastered the only way of reading this text. But at the same time, uh, it, it, introducing the text or, or by choosing Forster, there's, there's something about uh, you should read this because it's from another culture, but it shares a modernist aesthetic. Is that right? The preface is sort of broadening the category of, of modernist literature or saying that this belongs to a category that that you as a reader already like. 
Definitely, definitely. Forster opens that preface with this anecdote about um, an indignant colonel who um, borrowed a copy of his own book, A Passage to India, from the library and scribbled into that book um, that Forster's reference to latrine sweepers showed that he had a dirty mind. And the indignant colonel even included a page reference uh, where, where the next reader could find this. It's a funny gesture of, of sort of pointing out that this is so objectionable and offensive, but also directing the reader to it. And Forster sort of uses this apparently and apparently this was a, a, an actual event um, uh, given to us through various sources um, mm. from modernists and he refers to it as a way of saying you know what would the indignant colonel then say of Mulk Rajanan's novel Untouchable um, which is entirely about the life of a young latrine sweeper um, not just sort of my one reference um, right right and, okay and he sort of positions the reader as someone who would think the colonel is ridiculous in what he said about a passage to India, you, and then, yeah. of course, the reader is primed to be much <laughs> uh, more open to untouchable. Yeah. Fantastic. It reminds me as well, uh, looking at old indexes, people used to write for, for as, as far back as you want to go, back into the period before print, but people would scribble their own little indexes in the back of their books. And I found one from the early 1600s where somebody's written fornication, page two, dirty talk, page four, <laughs> murder, page six. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's certainly a, a kind of double movement going on here, isn't there? Where the, these are all the, the, the most terrible things. But just in case I do want to tell somebody about them, uh, here's how I can find that page reference yes. again. <laughs> Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about, jumping slightly, but about the paratext in modernist studies. It seems to be that as modernist scholars, scholars we're a little bit slower or more reticent than, than people working in the early modern period or medievalists to discuss a paratext. We, we may be still labouring on uh, under the dictum that there is no outside the text, but we're getting there. You're organizing the conference panel on modernism. I politics. am, yes. So a few weeks ago when we were talking, I, I mentioned to you that um, I too had thought that there wasn't much attention to the paratext in modernist studies. And I searched through the, the five years of most recent conference programs for the Modernist Studies Association, and I couldn't find one reference to the term paratext anywhere on the program, so in any panel. And I thought, wow, um, I'm just going to see what's out there, and I'm going to put out a call for papers and um, propose a panel. And uh, I thought at that time that maybe one of the reasons for this seeming um, neglect was that it isn't really in vogue to talk about authorial intention um, outside of um, narrative theory, which is my own approach. Um, and I thought maybe the only real interest in the paratext in modernist studies might be from book historians, with whom I have yes. a lot in common, or yes, yeah. come at this from um, different ways. But then I pleasantly received over a dozen proposals on the modernist <laughs> paratext, um, which was just fantastic. And I have a, a little short list. I can tell you what some of them were about, if you like, just in a phrase. Um, I got really idea that, yes. Sure. One was on um, illustrations to novels that were first serialized uh, before being subsequently published as um, uh, standalone novels. Um, another was on the footnotes to T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. Um, another was on dust jackets. And another was on um, the anonymous author, Anon, and life writing. And uh, the last one that I noted was on um, a frontispiece to an aesthetic treatise. Um, there were others as well, but these were the, some that stood out the most to me. Um, and it did suggest that there, there is work going on out there on the paratext. It is um, of interest to a lot of scholars. A lot of these people have book history backgrounds, um, so that part isn't surprising to me. Um, and maybe we are starting to um, be open to thinking about design and authorial intention again. Good. It's, it's 
to me, it's not surprising either that a lot of them are coming from the book history background, but you mentioned that for you, it's something that you approach through uh, narrative theory. Would you be able to say a little bit about what that approach is? Sure, of course. So I um, take what we call a rhetorical approach to narrative theory, where um, the rhetorical approach conceives of, of narrative in whatever form, whether it's a novel or a film or a television series or a graphic narrative, as a form of communication between an author and a reader. So an author tells a story to someone for some purpose, um, and uh, whether it's the author telling or, or the creation of a narrator who's doing that telling, the point is that it's a communicative act, and so there are purposes behind that, and um, in order to achieve those purposes, an author um, has certain means in order to achieve yes. certain ends, right? So it's sort of means and ends based approach to literary studies. So we're very much interested in recovering intention insofar as it exists in the text themselves. Um, and of course, for me, in the material that travels with text, i.e. the paratext. So so it must be then that, that the communication is, is sort of, or, or there are other people imposing on the communication then, like, as we were saying earlier, there's, there's J.M. Dent or Scribner or the various publishers who want in on the act of the communication or, or who are putting constraints on the communication in the form of demanding paratexts. Yes, definitely. Um, and it's amazing, I think, how many hands are involved in right. um, in that communication. And so it's nice to have a clean model um, that sort of talks <laughs> about author to, author to narrator to narrative to real reader and maybe add in a few uh, proxies for the author and reader as we go. But really, on the authorial side, there are um, an incredible number of hands involved in that. Mm. Um, you know, and even even today we see that with the, the contemporary paratext, there are reviews on the back covers, um, there are bylines and stickers that say Oprah's Book Club, and um, all of these things really impact the way that a work is received and ultimately the way that it's read and interpreted. Where does your work end? I mean, this project you're doing at the moment on the modernist preface, we've we've spoken about James, we've spoken about Conrad, we've mentioned Ford Maddox Ford and Herbert Reed. Where do you draw the boundary in your own work? Um, my own work sort of extends from the early 1900s to um, uh, the 1930s, and that's a sort of core period of, of modernism. And the dates are somewhat artificial. It's really just um, a, a sense um, of trying to find a, a time period in which writers were um, writing prefaces about their own and others' works and yeah. um, focusing in on, on those case studies. Something that we haven't discussed is the modernist writers who don't write prefaces, um, who you put it once, who recoil at the idea of, of writing prefaces. Not everybody is doing it, and there's a certain snobbery over this particular paratext. Well, I think that there um, is this sense that the text should stand alone, right, and that it doesn't yes. need an yes. introduction, it doesn't yes. need a preface. And I think we see this in two ways. Um, one is overtly comments like Ford Maddox Ford who, um, for his parades and tetralogy, um, the four novels came out at, at different periods in the 1920s, and he didn't have any kind of preface to the first, but in response to um, assertions that he really didn't agree with in reviews, he decided to publish a preface with the second edition, but he right. didn't want okay. to actually write a preface, so he wrote it as a dedicatory letter, um, and he mm. called it a necessary subterfuge because he thought that a text should stand alone, so it was a necessary subterfuge to write a dedicatory letter. Um, and he did that for the, 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 the final three novels in that tetralogy. Um, and so that's one side of things where um, there's that gesture of not wanting to do it, but doing it in an indirect way by writing a different kind of preface. And then yes, okay. on the other hand, yeah. we have writers who just don't do it at all. In addition to Ford um, and sort of doing it, but not uh, wanting to, so hedging and, and doing it via indirection, uh, we have writers yeah. like Virginia Woolf, who's notable for not writing prefaces at all. Mm. And um, I think in her case, one could hypothesize that it, it could be because she is very concerned with that authoritative stance that is implied by the act of writing a preface and claiming ownership over 
one's own or someone else's work. Right. So there's there's a will to to, to stand off, to, to to send the work out into the world, and and refuse to take ownership, refuse to to try pedagogically to direct the reading. Right. Um, anywhere else that we see that, I, I, I'm just trying to think now um, if there are other notable writers of the period who. Well, I think one thing that's interesting is is what happens when a writer so reluctantly does um, include a preface in Ford's case in the form of a dedicatory letter, and then a subsequent. Um, great writer, late modernist like Graham Greene comes along and, and Graham Greene took charge of creating the bodily head definitive edition of the Parades and Tetralogy, but he had decided already that the fourth novel didn't belong for religious and moral and aesthetic reasons. And so he um, published it as a trilogy down the road and he excised the preface, the prefatory letters, ah. prefatory letters. Um, in which it was clear that it was a tetralogy, right? Um, it became very clear that it was. Um, but by excising a paratext, we can then um, alter very significantly what text it is that we're even presenting. It's a fascinating case. Oh, it's so infuriating as, as somebody who works with paratexts, the idea that you can be, you can play fast and fast and loose with whether or not to include them in, in new editions of old things, whether or not to include the the index to Lewis Carroll's. Sylvian Bruno, which he wrote. These are authorial paratexts, right. and, and yet they get right. treated as if they're optional extras sometimes, don't they? Right, and I think the paratext can be, and, and often is, a highly contingent um, textual production in the sense that mm. it's doing very specific things in, a, in that time and place, in that historical and cultural moment. But nonetheless, it's still part of our ability as contemporary readers to understand the work that the text was doing in that cultural moment, right? And so if we don't have the paratext anymore and we only have the text, we may lose a sense of what that text was doing in its own Time. Absolutely. So I think absolutely. these documents are, are so vital. I, I completely agree. Often, often, to me, some of the ones that I work with are, are playful, like the index to Wolf's Orlando, for example. And, and if you lose the paratext, you lose the sense of what it was, the sense of how playful it was. And uh, oh, it's a, it's a soapbox that, <laughs> that I frequently stand <laughs> on with, <laughs> in relation to paratexts. Thank you so much for that, Sarah. Um, a really fascinating discussion of the modernist preface. I'm very much looking forward to reading your written work on it, uh, also to hearing about the, the way that the modernist paratext session goes at, at next year's MSA. So thank you very much yes. indeed, Sarah Copland. Thank you very much, Dennis. It was a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs>